UUCC family. My name is Lori Coultry and my pronouns are she and her. I am honored to serve as the second vice president of your board of trustees and it is my pleasure to welcome you to, the, to worship at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia. As we begin, we honor the Piscataway people and their ancestors. It is upon their land that we reside. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whoever you love, and whatever your faith tradition, you are welcome here. We are served by the Reverend Paige Getty, minister, as well as a talented and dedicated team of religious educators, musicians, and other professional staff. Today's service is led by our director of music and musical artist extraordinaire, Michael Adcock. Much appreciation goes out to the many lay leaders and volunteers whose incredible efforts and dedication help keep us connected. We particularly welcome any guests joining worship this morning. We encourage you to fill out the visitors form in the lobby or online and connect with others or in, or in the virtual or in-person social hour after the service so we may meet and welcome you. Finally, for those attending worship in our sanctuary at the Owen Brown Interface Center this morning, please take a moment to silence your cell phones and other electronic devices. And now for this morning's announcements. Families of all shapes and sizes, whether you are newer to UUCC or have been around for years, are invited to join us for Family Fun Day, happening this coming Saturday, August 27th from 10 a.m. to noon outside our Owen Brown Interface Center. There'll be plenty of water games, sidewalk chalk, hula hoops, and tables set up for chatting and catching up on our summer adventures. And here's my personal favorite part. We'll also paint pride-themed rocks to hand out as gifts at UUCC's booth at this year's Howard County Pride Fest. We hope to see you all there. Save the date for UUCC's in-gathering potluck lunch on Sunday, September 11th after our worship service. Bring a dish and a friend. For more information, visit the UUCC calendar. And don't forget to join us after worship today in Sanctuary B for coffee hour. And now please welcome Robin Slaw, our Religious Education Director. Thanks, Laurie. I am introducing one of our youth today who wanted to speak to you about the profound impact that religious education has had on her. So you're gonna see a video. She couldn't be here with us today, so she pre-recorded something for me. Pay attention to what she says, because it's pretty amazing what this place has done for her in her life. And then come see me after the service or email me if you're at home to sign up to help volunteer with our religious education program. Thanks. Hello, I'm Lily Bonilla and my pronouns are they, she, 
this is my little are you thing. So when I was asked if I wanted to do a video about how RE has impacted me, I immediately said yes. It has really had a huge positive impact on who I am today. The RE program is just something so individual and so close together that there's no other way to explain it except for like, it's just a family. The RE program is such a open, such a diverse, such a welcoming space to be in. And having that as a child and being able to have that from such an early point in life is so important. And I've seen that in myself and I've seen that in the other kids that are within the RE program that I was in there with that I have helped teach when I volunteered at the preschool for the preschool level children um, and for my own little brothers. It's just such a good thing to have, to have that part where you have a community that's a classroom, but it doesn't feel like work because it feels like fun because it is fun because that is the class is to have fun and be accepting and grow your community and that's such a vital and fun part to actually have as a child there's never a lonely kid there's never a dull moment there's never a time where you think I don't belong here or this isn't fun, I want to go home. Never. And to make friends with kids that are your age, even especially um, if you're having trouble making friends like I was, because I immediately clicked with some of those kids. And that meant so much to me. And it still does mean so much to me. It just really is that special. And it really is just that magical place where you can go and be a kid and learn how to work within a functional community at the same time. I just think, I think that's a great thing about RE is that they take real world problems, show you that it is a problem in in a way that a child would understand without lightening it we learned that the factories that give us our plastic toys were destroying the world they told us that straight out but they said that we could fix it and we can and we will and we tried and we will continue to try having that Learning to be a functional member of society and being a good person in the community as a child is so good and it's such an opportunity that so many people do not get, get to have. So many children are unaware of the issues in the society, in the world, in the environment. They're just telling you early so that you know and that's a great thing, I believe, because these kids 
me at that time and these kids now, they're the future. And they're what we have to be able to make this world better. And with RE, it just really gives us, it bumps us up a step. Good morning, everyone. This is a quote from Paul Robeson, born in 1898 and he died in 1976. Spiritual reparations. Yes, I heard my people singing in the glow of the parlor coal stove and on summer porches, sweet with lilac air, and from choir loft and Sunday morning pews and my soul was filled with their harmonies. Then too, I heard these songs in the sermons of my father, for in the Negro speech, there is much of the phrasing and rhythms of folk song. The great soaring gospels we love are merely sermons that are sung. Good morning. My name is Regina Varro. My pronouns are she and hers, and I am serving as the worship associate for today's service. Um, I want to remind everybody online that there is a downloadable order of service on our website if you'd like to follow along. For those who have any technical issues or are looking for links, please use the chat to communicate with one another and with Becky, who is responding to inquiries of the chat this morning. If you have a joy or sorrow that you would like to have read aloud today and you're in the sanctuary, there is a book in the back. And if you're online, you can send it to 
joys and sorrows at uucolumbia.net. There will also be a time for people in the sanctuary to drop stones in the water in silence during our music meditation. And now I invite you to close your eyes, take a deep breath, and hear the sounding of the bell as it brings us together in worship. My name is Jenny Afkinich, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I will be reading our chalice lighting today. Uh, in a 2021 interview for Religious, Religion News, Paul Kwame, the current musical director of the Fisk Jubilee Singers, was asked if he thought that a white choir singing spirituals was a form of cultural appropriation. Here was his response. As a musician, I don't agree with that because growing up in Ghana, we were taught songs like the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. I don't believe that the performance of music should be limited to one specific culture because music rather brings us together. I would encourage people of each and every culture to learn music of other cultures. And the great Paul Robeson, uh, the great baritone Paul Robeson concurred, saying, I've learned that my people are not the only ones oppressed. I have sung my songs all over the world and found that some common bond makes the people of all lands take to Negro songs as their own. Each week, we recite our congregational covenant, a set of promises we make to each other and for each other to remind us about what brings us together and how we choose to live in right relationship with one another. I invite you to stand as you are able and recite these promises with me now. Strengthened by our common humanity and inspired by our several principles, we promise to be a safe and welcoming community, to nurture each other's hearts and spirits, to delight in the beauty of our diversity, 
to struggle together on our spiritual journeys and to challenge each other to live our values. Thus, we pledge our time and vigor to the continuing celebration of spirit, of the world, and of humankind. And now please take a moment to greet your neighbors, introduce yourself to someone you've never met before, and turn around to the camera to say hello, as well as to everyone who is joining us online. Good morning again. <laughs> How long do we let this last? Yeah, it's a little longer. Okay. <laughs> it always looks like there's not going to be anyone here in the two minutes before. Tim needs him. I always feel like this part is a horse taking off running. And I, I know. <laughs> Maybe now it's now it's Good morning. Hi. Good morning, everyone. I'm Michael Ladcock, your music director. It's great to see everyone here this morning and also to make it a little simpler this morning. There are a lot of moving parts, and I'm playing a lot of roles. Oh, okay. Everyone, young and old, stay seated for the okay. time for all ages this morning, if that's okay. Messages that gave them information to find both routes and helpers that might assist them in escaping slavery. Very often, the spirituals, the gospel tunes, and even some of the folk tunes we sing have vague and mysterious origins. And sometimes what we think we know about the history of a piece of music turns out to be false, or have a slightly more complicated background than what we originally thought. So how many of you know this campfire song called Kumbaya? Yeah. So many of us sang this in Christian churches or camps, scout camps, and other types of camp outings. At one point, I think by the 1970s, it was such a familiar song that it came to be regarded as a vapid, even somewhat dumbed-down, touchy-feely campfire ditty. But oddly enough, if you research its origins, it actually has history as a spiritual or slave song, likely first sung and performed by members of the Gullah culture in the coastal south. So Gullah is a language that was spoken by slaves that inhabited the coastal areas of the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida. And these people had ties to enslaved West Africans. In about 1926, a scholar from the Archive of American Folk Song first recorded a Georgia Sea Island man singing the song as Come By Here, or Kumbaya, with a Gullah accent. When he sang it, it had this certain lilt, almost like a repetitive incantation. The meaning of the song is a pleading cry for God's help. As the second verse exclaims, someone's crying, Lord, Kumbaya or even later, someone's dying, Lord, Kumbaya. The spiritual, which was sung by the Gullah slaves, was later co-opted by white intermediaries, eventually leading to its campfire status. Other origin stories exist, but they are mostly speculative. And very often in our American song history, simple tunes from oppressed cultures 
are appropriated. This means to take over and use by another culture's purposes. And this is where things can get dicey and a little more complex, because much of the folk music we sing is borrowed, altered, and changed for better or worse. While it's a good thing to teach and share significant songs and folk tunes, sometimes the altered words can be misunderstood or even plagiarized as someone else's, and it's often the dominant class which benefits. So it's important that we be careful and pay respect to the correct origins of a song as much as can be determined. So that we now know a little bit more about Kumbaya's history, let's sing it together a little more reverently with a renewed appreciation for its background. We'll sing the original repeated words, Kumbaya, then a second verse, someone's crying, Lord. If you don't know it, you'll quickly catch on to its inherent simplicity. Okay? Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. Oh Lord, Kumbaya. Someone's crying. Someone's crying, Lord, Kumbaya. Someone's crying, Lord, Kumbaya. Someone's crying, Lord, Kumbaya. Oh, Lord, Kumbaya. Thank you. And now I would like to invite any of the children who would like to go to meet in the back of the sanctuary with Robin and Kelly to go to our summer religious education program. Um, it is for all ages and there's lots of fun stuff going on. So I highly encourage you, even if you haven't been before, to go with them. And for everyone else who is staying, please rise as you are able and we are going to sing hymn number 208 and the words will be printed on the screen.
So today we continue our investigation of the African-American spiritual in the service of words, stories, and music, kind of part two of the Chalice Choir special music service, which happened back in April and coincided with UCC's newly created and inaugurated spirituals reparations project. I'd like to share a few more details about the background of spirituals and particularly the history of the Fisk University Jubilee Singers and delving into some of the coded messages contained within the spirituals you're going to hear this morning. Finally, Lori Coultry will offer the specific story of one such spiritual follow the drinking gourd, after which our chalice choir will sing our own Tom and Rose arrangement of this unique folk song spiritual. I want to thank our wonderful ad hoc summer chalice choir for being so gracious and willing to sing for you this morning with only one rehearsal. <laughs> if you hadn't had a chance to look at the informative new UCC Spirituals Reparation Project webpage that Lori so beautifully created, I urge you to do so at your convenience where you're creating a database of historical information about every spiritual that we sing here at UCC a practice of honor and respect for this great tradition, and one of the most significant forms of American folk song, period. The term spiritual is probably derived from the King James Bible translation of Ephesians 5.19, which goes speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody and your heart and to the Lord. We know that the roots of spirituals are in the informal gatherings of slaves in praise houses and bush arbor meetings, as well as various ring shouts, chanting and hand clapping pieces by early plantation slaves. Of course, these types of African infused ways of singing and worshiping were feared and even frowned upon, banned in many instances as idolatrous and even considered wild. There are many types of spirituals, the call and response variety with freeform rhythm, vocal slides and turns, joyous jubilees or camp meeting songs, and of course, the intense and slow melancholic sorrow songs representing suffering and longing for liberation. And many of these songs, themes of protest abound and incitements to escape slavery. A strong theology of God and great religious faith is a consistent theme in Negro spirituals. Here, God is not separate or distant from reality, but an almighty who was a companion in the slave's misery and would hopefully keep the promise of eventual transcendence over a deplorable human condition. Jesus was seen as a friend and fellow suffering servant, one who offered hope in the midst of both loneliness and tribulations that left both physical and psychological scars, a hope that endured and rose above affliction. Even in bondage, there was God's promise of life and purpose, as heaven was an eventual place of salvation and eternal rest. For the slave, there was real connection to the biblical characters who suffered but eventually received justice and righteousness. The story of how the famous Fisk University Jubilee Singers were created begins as a story of financial hardship. Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, an historically black college, opened in 1886 as the first American university to offer a liberal arts education to young men and women irrespective of color. But after just five years, the university was in dire financial straits. So Fisk University treasurer and professor of music George White created a nine-member choral ensemble of students to take on tour to earn money for the university. 
The day they left the campus, which was October 6th, 1871, has since been referred to and commemorated as Jubilee, Jubilee Day at the school. These singers were later named the Jubilee Singers, which was a biblical reference to the year of the Jubilee and the book of Leviticus chapter 25, when all Israelites who were slaves would be set free. The perseverance and beautiful voices of the Fisk University singers eventually began to change attitudes among the predominantly white audiences. Early skepticism was replaced by standing ovations and critical praise. In 1872, they performed at the White House and toured Europe the following year, raising enough money to construct the school's first permanent building, Jubilee Hall. Today, a designated historical landmark the beautiful Victorian Gothic building houses a floor-to-ceiling portrait of the singers commissioned by Queen Victoria, oddly enough, as a gift from England to Fisk University. The Fisk University singers' first tour followed the path of the Underground Railway, and it was at a special fundraising concert at Oberlin College, my alma mater, <laughs> in 1871, where the triumphant impact of their moving, singing, and sharing of spirituals really began to help their reputation spread. Eventually, every church wanted a concert from them, and they began to attract and perform for more and more dignitaries and diplomats. The writer, Mark Twain, who was particularly taken with the Jubilee Singers, remarked in 1875 that he was expecting to hear the singers tonight for the fifth time which was not the 50th time, only because I have yet to have 50 opportunities. <laughs> Although the Jubilee Singers suffered many hardships on their tours, as well as discrimination, the power of their sung spirituals challenged racial stereotypes on two continents. In introducing the world to the music of Black America, they championed the liberties of all Americans. And at Fisk University, their tradition still continues more than 125 years later. All of the recorded gathering and postlude music you will hear this morning are historic recordings of these singers, some represented by an early all-male group and later by a more mixed ensemble. But now, before Lori and I uh, introduce our Spirituals Reparations Group designee, I'd like for you to see and hear a video of a more contemporary iteration of the Fisk University Ensemble and a live performance of Wade in the Water. Again, in the words of Mark Twain, I do not know of anything that has so moved me as the plaintive melodies of the Jubilee Singers. Hearing them sing in the genuine old way, arduous and painstaking cultivation has not diminished or artificialized their music only mightily reinforced its eloquence and beauty. Children waiting in the water. 
So last spring, when we decided to first undertake this new UCC Spirituals Reparations Project, we realized that we needed to have a committee of some sort. <laughs> and I'm very grateful that we have a committee of about six members, and most of them are here this morning. So Lori and I are members of the committee. In addition, Jenny Afkinich and Glenner Shirley, John Harris and Pamela Henry. And we're so uh, thrilled that we have these folks who are willing and able to talk with us and to, to decide, that was what we had to decide to do, to debate what we, was important to us in terms of determining who might be a worthy recipient of reparations funds. And there were a couple of criteria that we thought, and two main reasons, two main things we liked would consider. One is that it should be a regional group of some kind, and second, we thought it would be worthy if it were a 
choral group of some kind that would help disseminate the great tradition of singing African-American spirituals. And we decided by unanimous decision that we would choose the Community Concert Choir of Baltimore, which unfortunately is on hiatus right now because of COVID, but they'll start up again soon. And I had a wonderful conversation with their director, Marco Merrick, on the phone. We have many mutual Peabody friends, so it was a wonderful connection. And they're very excited to partner with us in this project. And Lori's going to tell you just a little bit about their ensemble, after which I'm going to let you see a video of their ensemble. I'm still Lori Coultry. The Community Concert Choir of Baltimore was founded by its director, Dr. Marco K. Merrick, in July 2010 to, in the words of its mission, preserve and promote the sacred music tradition of the African American church. The choir's website further explains the fundamental importance of Negro spirituals in this way. The African American church tradition cultivated a broad spectrum of music, shaping our American history, and fostered faith through our ancestors' songs. They survived the horrific middle passage of the slave trade and stamped their inimitable legacy in the souls of successive generations. Spirituals inspire each era spanning slavery, American Revolution, Civil War, Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws, the Civil Rights Movement, and the modern day, crafting musical development around the world. In, further of it, in furtherance of its mission, the choir's repertoire, in the words of the website, spans the Negro spiritual, Western European hymns and anthems, and the evolution of gospel music all of which undergird the music of modern African-American church. In ordinary times, the choir performs four signature concerts on Palm Sunday, spring, fall, and Christmas, plus other special events. Currently on singing hiatus due to COVID, the choir is still active in providing scholarships to support local Baltimore music students. Thank you, Lori. And as always, whenever we sing spirituals, here, we're going to have a reparations basket, spirituals reparation basket in the back, and you're welcome to donate to that offering. And we will collect these, these funds and maybe quarterly disperse them to this organization. And uh, also, if you uh, aren't here on a Sunday morning, I think we have a reparations line on the Realm Giving page that you might drop down, and you could also give that way. So we'll enjoy the performance during the offertory of this choir. This religious community exists by its mission as a fire exists by burning. But a fire cannot burn without fuel. And it is the time, the energy, the imagination, the vision, the creativity, the compassion, the love, and the financial support of the members and friends of this community that fuels our mission to nurture and sustain a welcoming, inclusive, and diverse liberal religious community that transforms lives and serves the world. Your support, the free and generous support of each and every member and friend of this community is what fuels it and its mission. And without your support, the flame of justice, community and love cannot burn brightly to warm ourselves and be a beacon in a world threatened by division and fear. I invite you to be generous with your contributions and the sharings of your abundance. You can drop your offerings in the basket at the back of the sanctuary, 
or if you're watching online, instructions for donating will be up on your screen. The offering will now be gratefully received.
I did speak with him about the possibility at some point in the future, maybe a subset of them coming to sing for us. But of course, no pressure. <laughs> there were no expectations. So you know that since I've been director here, I've often come to share details in front of you about the music that we play and sing and interesting compositional background anecdotes or stories that are often crucial to really understanding and comprehending a piece of music. It's always been important to me, especially in terms of what we sing and appropriate from other cultures, with regards to spirituals of the utmost responsibility to illuminate. When the choir and I offered our music service back in April, tied to our introduction of this project, I went into some detail about the spirituals you heard, and so now I'll take a few more minutes to share some words and history about this morning's music. While researching these wonderful spirituals doesn't always yield definitive provenance nor specific ethnomusicological details, it instead proves that music is constantly changing, adapting, and being used to fit moments throughout history. In a way, the absence of a perfectly packaged and detailed background history can be part of the appeal, magic, and depth, while simultaneous and closer investigation can shed light on the true, or should I say truer, meaning of a piece of music. This morning's prelude, My Lord, What a Morning, is of course an instrumental version of a spiritual that your chalice choir has sung before. And you may have seen in the title that I recall in the past being puzzled as sometimes I saw it read the final word morning and other times morning with a U, depending upon the source. For clarification, scholars sometimes divide spirituals into three origin source cl classifications, time of origin, place of origin, and manner of origin. This spiritual comes from an 1801 collection of spiritual songs and hymns by Richard Allen, first bishop of the AME Church. And the spirituals in this collection were likely not conceived on plantations in the southern states, but mostly composed by independent black congregations in the north. In addition to some powerful biblical apocalyptic messages contained within the spiritual, trumpets sounding, stars beginning to fall, nations underground, a later 1867 collection of slave songs identifies the spiritual's title, final word, as mourning, not mourning, based on biblical text from the book of Matthew. It's possible that the oral and communal process of black choirs getting together to sing spirituals may have simply embraced the homophonous coincidence of these two words together. In this morning's choral introit, Deep River, wanting to cross over into Camp Crown, exemplifies this constant hope held in the hearts of those enslaved. No matter the conditions, there was hope for freedom, a place free from oppression and fear. Here it's important to understand the metaphor of a deep river as a constant, difficult, and wide barrier one must cross over to arrive at a promised land where one could finally join the gospel feast. Spirituals often use titles of biblical rivers, in this case, Jordan, to represent both journeys and possible escapes to freedom. And our opening hymn this morning, Every Time I Feel the Spirit, wonders and miracles contained in the Bible represent great spiritual power of imagery as hope for deliverance from the hell of earth. We sang, upon the mountain, my God spoke, out of his mouth came fire and smoke. 
representing a personal, personal relationship with the Lord, but also possibly the fire and smoke of the Underground Railroad, rivers and trains being the two main methods for escaping to freedom. The text also reads, the river Jordan is chilly and cold. Again, the metaphor of the river. However, the real river Jordan in Egypt wouldn't be chilly and cold, but the Ohio River, a common crossing point to the northern free states, certainly is and was. Finally, ain't but one train upon this track leads to heaven and right back, represents the metaphysical realm of the afterlife, whereas there, as is there is no earthly train to heaven, but one could possibly get to heaven on earth through the Underground Railroad. It's interesting to note that the railroad trade did not come to America until the 1820s and certainly did not reach any slave territory until the 30s or 40s, yet many spiritual poems and songs of these years exploited the seductive sound, speed, and power of trains and their ability to carry large numbers of passengers economically. Wade in the Water, which you heard a few minutes ago, was of course a well-known spiritual associated with the Underground Railroad, particularly connected to Harriet Tubman, who helped to free dozens of slaves by warning them to get off the trail and wade into the shallow water to prevent the dogs used by slave hunters to locate slaves, as the water would throw off the scent of the escapees. Great Day which you heard during the offertory, is a spiritual with references in the Bible to the day of the Lord, typically meaning the final day of judgment when all things will be set right, a symbol of hope to enslaved people. This piece was originally a call and response spiritual song with a repeated chorus, God's gonna build up Zion's walls. Sometimes additional rhyming couplets will be improvised in these types of songs typically utilizing biblical references of judgment, deliverance, and justice. Great day, the righteous marching, refers not only to the return of exiled Jews to Jerusalem, but also a possible final battle in the book of Revelation in which the forces of good and evil might have their final confrontation. If God can take up the prophet Elijah up into heaven, chariot road, the mountain top, then he certainly could possibly do the same thing for the enslaved. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child represents an expression of deep pain, despair, and hopelessness of a child who has been taken from their mother or father. Typically, it was not uncommon in the slavery era to sell children away from their parents. Aside from this literal meaning, the text also represents a metaphorical slave separation from family and friends and the yearning for an African homeland a long ways from home, or possibly even the interpretation of the longing for death, which sometimes slaves saw as their only means of escape. Finally, we will close the service with the spiritual, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. Based on the biblical story of Jacob's Ladder, this folk song spiritual became one of the first slave spirituals to be taken up by white Christians. Songs with ladder motifs were common in the 19th century and represented the upward struggle to reach a better place. While the tune's precise origins are lost, it is widely believed to have originated in an area known as Liberia. 
Although the lyrics vary from place to place over time, they generally emphasize spiritual growth and a call to discipleship. The climbing in these songs represents a sort of striving as a series of survival tests with greater sacrifice demanded at each level. Here, the Christian slave is portrayed as a warrior able to rise up and escape, possibly aided by the biblical patriarch, Jacob. Our tradition of sharing our joys and sorrows is a custom in our congregation where one can publicly and openly share a significant, meaningful event that has deeply touched their lives. As I read the joys and sorrows, we will listen deeply and lovingly. We are made mindful of the sacredness of the ritual when we cast a stone in the bowl of communal water. The ripples it forms in the water symbolize how our lives ripple out and touch one another. During the music meditation, if you are in the sanctuary, you are invited to come drop a stone in the water silently to honor your joys and sorrows. And now we place one last stone in the water for all that is left unsaid in our hearts. In his 1845 memoir, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, Douglass wrote, enslaved people would make the dense old woods for miles around reverberate with their wild songs, revealing at once the highest joy and the deepest sadness. They would compose and sing as they went along, consulting neither time nor tune. The thought that came up came out, if not in the word, in the sound, and as frequently in the one as in the other. They would sometimes sing the most pathetic sentiment in the most rapturous tone, and the most rapturous sentiment in the most pathetic tone. They told a tale of woe, which was then altogether beyond my feeble comprehension. They were tones loud, long, and deep, they breathed the prayer and complaint of souls boiling over with the bitterest anguish. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer for God for deliverance from chains. The hearing of those wild notes always depressed my spirit and filled me with ineffable sadness. I have frequently found myself in tears while hearing them.
not to break the mood. <laughs> Imagine you're a musicologist who focuses on, focuses on folk music, and you want to study the coded messages of Negro spirituals. And let's also imagine that you have a time machine. What an advantage. Even with this sci-fi magic, you'd need to find a way to find and interview individual enslaved people without endangering them. And if you're white like me, you'd also need to find some way to build enough trust to persuade those that you meet to reveal information that if word got out, would undermine the entire Underground Railroad. We're sure that Negro spirituals contained coded messages. Contemporaries of the time, like Frederick Douglass, referred explicitly to them. But we can also be sure that the coded meanings of spirituals were carefully guarded secrets, held only in oral tradition, and passed along intergenerationally in families and black churches. This presents the problem that we face today. Historians and musicologists have some idea of what the themes probably were in many of them, but we have no way of actually proving it. And some songs identified as spirituals may not be. Follow the Drinking Gourd is one song with which musicologists have struggled. Joel Bressler, in who, in full disclosure, is not a musicologist, compiled numerous facts and rumors and collected them into a website called Follow the Drinking Gourd, a Cultural History, listed in your order of service. Bressler says that in 1932, a white woman, Marie Dressler, claimed that in 1873, she had heard a black man sing Follow the Drinking Gourd in her Illinois hometown. If true, and this is a big if, this marks the earliest claimed reference to the song. The song is alleged to refer to an agent of the Underground Railroad, Peg Leg Joe, who, quote, moved from plantation to plantation just north of Mobile, Alabama, teaching slaves the song and marking an escape route, unquote. None of this can be proven, and some of it seems a little far-fetched. The song was published in 1928 by the Texas Folklore Society and arranged by Lee Hayes of the Weavers in 1947. I am most persuaded by Bressler's remark that the escape image of the song, for example, the obvious reference to the Big Dipper and being carried to freedom, is much more overt than the typical biblical storytelling of most spirituals. It couldn't have been safely used by enslaved people to direct an escape. So I'm persuaded that it's not a true Negro spiritual, at least not in anything like its current form. But Follow the Drinking Gourd is in fact an American folk song and served as an iconic freedom song of the civil rights movement. It was performed by protesters throughout the mid 20th century and by professional musicians from Pete Seeger to Peter, Paul and Mary. With its metaphors of escape on the Underground Railroad, it can introduce the coded significance of true Negro spirituals and help us understand the history of the struggle for freedom. Our ad hoc summer choir is proud and honored to perform this wonderful arrangement by our very own Tom Monroe. Oh, um. 
Tom for that beautiful arrangement and thank you choir it's been lovely to hear you today I've missed you <laughs> um, our closing hymn today will be we are climbing Jacob's ladder the words are on the slide or in the order of service please rise as you are willing and able to sing <laughs> benediction is an excerpt from the poem, O Black and Unknown Bards of Long Ago, by James Weldon Johnson. How came your lips to touch the sacred fire? How in your darkness did you come to know the power and beauty of the minstrel's lyre, who first from the midst his bonds lifted his eyes, who first from out the still watch Low, lone and long, feeling the ancient faith of prophets rise within his dark-kept soul, burst into song. Go now in peace. <laughs>